evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Tomorrow, November 11th, is Veterans Day, officially recognized in 1938 and called Armistice Day, this holiday was designed to honor veterans of World War I. In June of 1954, Congress changed the holiday name to Veterans Day to reflect the honoring of American veterans in all wars. Veterans Day provides us with an opportunity to express sincere appreciation for the men and women who have served in our country's armed forces. There was a time in our country, though, when not all veterans were afforded the respect they deserved. Despite putting their lives on the line in fighting for this country, African-American veterans were often treated with disdain both in the military and at home. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the treatment of African-American veterans and the vital role that they played in the civil rights movement. We have joining us in this discussion, Adrian Lentz-Smith, who is a professor and associate chair of the history department at Duke University, where she holds secondary appointments in the African and African-American studies and gender, sexuality, and feminist studies department. First of all, thank you for oh. taking your time to be on the show with us. I am happy to be here. Professor Lynn Smith, you've written a really insightful book, and it's called Freedom Struggles, African-Americans, and World War One. So I've had a chance to, uh, to read your book, and it's just outstanding. And so the first question that I have for you is, how did you become interested in the topic, and what led you to decide to write a book about it? Um, my answer to that question is the answer that every college professor wants to hear, which is that I had to do a research project at some point my junior year of college, and it was in an African-American history class, and I decided... Well, I'll just go read The Crisis, the NAACP's monthly magazine, because The Crisis always had interesting stories and people. It was just a great source. And I came across an investigation written by Martha Groening, who was an NAACP staffer of a riot or a, sort of a, a mutiny led by black soldiers in Houston, Texas in 1917. And at the time, college junior, you know, learning my way into African-American history, my first thought was, there were black soldiers in World War I? Mm -hmm. And then my second thought was, they shot people? Like, what is this, right? Mm -hmm. So that research project became my senior honors thesis in college and slowly grew. I decided at some point that I wanted to be a professional historian. I went to graduate school. I had questions about what you know, manhood, the language of manhood, the sort of claims for citizenship and the call for civil rights all had to do with one another. And I ended up back in the same territory of the Houston riot of black soldiers' experiences in World War One, And the rest is history. History, as they say. Mm -hmm. So what, and we're going to get into a lot of the specifics about the treatment of African-American veterans, soldiers, and, uh, and the role that they played. 
but can you share with us maybe some surprising something surprising that you learned as you were doing your research you know in addition to wow there were black soldiers in world war one right um sure there were a lot of small things and actually some big things part of it for me is that i hadn't really thought about African Americans out and about in the world in the early part of the 20th century, right? My father was in the Army, which is probably another answer to your question of how I came to be interested in these things. And he had been stationed abroad briefly, but my sense of American blackness was Southern blackness moving about the South, and maybe if you were crazy to Chicago or Detroit, and that was about it, right? And so to go back to these histories of people who were in the world partially because circumstance put them there and then some of the folks who opted to stay because they had critiques of America that led them to leave America behind for me again as a college student and then later as a graduate student were really kind of revelatory about the world of possibility right so that's one thing two going into the project I had really thought like I'm writing about black soldiers so I'm writing about black men Right. Like this is a, this is that history um, and was slightly uncomfortable about that because I was thinking I'm missing half of the population in doing so. What I came to see in thinking about African-American politics in this period are the ways in which African-American women were incredibly vocal and incredibly visionary about what they wanted black soldiering to mean for the community, broadly speaking. Right. So soldiers were, as I think I say somewhere in the book, they were the agents of the freedom struggle in this period, but they were also the emblems, which is to mean that people like in sermons or in op-ed pieces and black papers or what have you were saying, when you go to France, you're going to do this, and this is what it's going to mean for the race. And when you come home, you're going to fight as hard for democracy at home as you did overseas, right? So it's not simply that the service abroad made that desire occur to people, it's that their mothers, their sisters, the broader community at large was like, here's what this is going to do for us, right? The plan was already kind of in people's heads before they ever went overseas. Well, let, let me just, you know, cause raise this question. In light of the fact that uh, uh, World War One occurred right at the uh, inception of uh, Jim Crow, uh, that uh, in the South, uh, hardcore uh, Jim Crow uh, had uh, had settled in and was settling in around the uh, the country. Uh, what then constituted the motivation uh, that people would push African American men to want to go uh, into the uh, the military, and then that these men would see that that was a viable approach uh, to, to deal with the uh, entrenched uh, Jim Crow that was emerging uh, or had solidified itself at that point. Um, you're right. Jim Crow had solidified, and it wasn't just regional. We have to remember that with the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, who becomes president in 1913, is, is re-elected in 1916, so his term begins again in 1917, we have a president who institutionalizes or whose administration institutionalizes and embeds Jim Crow segregation 
in Washington, D.C. and beyond, right? There had been segregation in the federal government, but it's really systematized and, and aggressively expanded during the Wilson administration. So there's that, right? People are looking at the reality where this Jim Crow system that had overtaken the South, African Americans are looking at the system that had overtaken the South, had announced itself as national, and as the U.S. is beginning these forays into places like Haiti or what have you, is beginning to look like it's going even beyond the contiguous United States, right? So they're worried about what happens when Jim Crow has wings, and they need something to disrupt it. The war comes along and is this cataclysmic world event that is going to be wildly destructive and horrible, but has the potential also to to disrupt American systems of racialized power, right? So folks who see African-American participation in World War One as something that they want to that they want to pursue they think that maybe like it, within this horrible war there can be one small redemptive thing right and that vision goes alongside Woodrow Wilson's own rhetoric about the war as a war for democracy right so he doesn't mean to but he actually hands activists the very language that they need to mobilize people for the cause of the black freedom struggle. Um, but, all- but, in, but in spite of, of, of that, though, there, there is this, uh, I guess, stated or unstated uh, policy uh, that uh, we're, we're not prepared yet to give uh, these uh, black men uh, uh, the opportunity to get guns and to be trained and uh, using uh, guns and then to come back uh, to, uh, to the United States uh, militarily prepared uh, that they may just turn uh, on us uh, to uh, exact some uh, revenge for the uh, treatment that they've, uh, they've been accustomed to uh, within the country. That's exactly right. And that's a whole... So, uh the connection between military service and citizenship rights is longstanding and old, and one of the reasons that when Jim Crow is institutionalized at the beginning of the 20th century in the South, most Southern um, states, maybe all of them, disband their black militias, right? Because you can't take away people's citizenship rights and have them serve at the same time, and you don't want them armed, right? What happens in the lead up to World War One is that you're right. There is a strong resistance on many people's part to black military service. There's a tiny portion of um, black regulars in the army, right, who are off basically in faraway spaces doing the work of American empire. So they don't come and trouble like, you know, the South or, or spots like that. But by and large, people don't think that they want black soldiers, certainly not as combat troops. When the discussions of conscription or the draft or, you know, compulsory military service come up, there's a debate. So, I mean, the famous quote comes from Mississippi demagogue James Gay Vardaman, who I always say is, like, poetic in his racial vitriol and in his, like, obsession with and hostility to African Americans actually gets African American aspiration better than a lot of liberals, 
right? Because he'll say things like, you know, when he was arguing against conscription in 1916, he says, if you give a Negro a gun, it is a short step, and tell him that he must use it, you know, in defense of democracy, it's basically a short step to thinking that he should bring that gun back home and use it where he's from. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, that's the same argument that a lot of black women are making to their men as they're sending them off into the army. Um, But at the same time, there are folks who think that they can use African-Americans in labor positions in the army rather than in combat positions. And so what you see, right, is that um, when in, in the an army that has 386,000 or so African-Americans pulled into it for the wartime army, only 40,000 are actually going to be used as combat troops. The rest are doing building roads, you know, loading and unloading ships, doing really sort of labor work. And in fact, some of them are doing some in old leftover laborers' uniforms from previous wars, right? They don't even all get into uniform. African-American, who, African-Americans who see activism around soldiers and soldiering will push then for an officer's training camp in order to make sure that some folks are in leadership positions. What they end up getting is a segregated camp, though, and folks feel really divided about that, right? Do you take nothing? Or do you accept one more space of segregation in order to hope that you could build out from there? And so what was the view of the, the men who had enlisted when they've, you know, they, they want to move into these leadership positions, but you know, the, the fact that they would have to do so in segregated spaces is, is counter to what I, I would assume they would have expected to experience within the military? What was their... How did that play into their decision to enlist? So not so. some people try to enlist and they're turned away. By and large, that's what happens, right? There is, there is not a lot of black enlistment. They're the folks who come, they're the 1,200-ish folks who end up in the officer's training camp, largely college, college men, many of whom have done ROTC on their college campuses or have been in some of the few still extant black National Guard um, units. Um, Those guys, I think, accept the compromise because, I mean, there's not, it's not like there's a lot of integrated space that they're moving around anyway, right? So on the one hand, it's a bitter pill to swallow for the army to further um, embed segregation. On the other hand, it's not a dramatic change. I think for enlisted men, many of whom, I'm not sorry, enlisted men, sort of the enlisted men meaning Mm non-officers, right? Um, Many of whom are draftees, they're coming out of places where they're living segregated lives anyway. Um, And for many of them, you know, the day-to-day interactions with white soldiers who are hostile to their being there, who want to remind them that military service will change nothing, who are basically as busy fighting their aspiration as they are prosecuting the war. Like those interactions are exhausting and um, demoralizing and heart-wrenching. 
And so it's not like integration feels good, right? And in that way, having some segregated space maintains their psyche, right? Because the other thing that we're going to see when we talk about the legacy of the war or fighting the war on soldiers is that for many of them, it's not simply the experience of going abroad, it's not simply the sort of rhetoric of war for democracy, but it's the deep disillusion of realizing how committed everyday white people are to holding them down that will begin to radically transform their their political consciousness. I, I would assume that there were many who wanted to serve because they wanted to fight for this country, that notwithstanding the, um, the, the negativity that they were experiencing, that this was still a country that they loved and, and certainly hoped would um, behave better. And so serving this country might help legitimize their, their place in this country. Um, is that an accurate? Yeah, I think possession? that there. So there's some people who want to serve because like it's a job and a steady paycheck, and they can send it home, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are some people who want to serve because they think, you know, at least in my unit, it's like a coterie and a cohort of like brave and courageous men. Like we are just bad, and this is the way we can be bad, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, but then there are people whom there is a combination of patriotism, right? Um, and aspiration. And they think, people just don't know what we're capable of. And the war is an opportunity to show the world what we can do and where black people are and what our accomplishments. Well, actually, this is a perfect time for us to take our break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Adrian Lint-Smith, who is a professor at history at Duke University and author of an outstanding book titled Freedom Struggles, African-Americans and World War One. We've been talking about African-American veterans and the, the treatment that they received and the impact that they've made on the civil rights movement. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The right to express one's thoughts and to communicate freely with others affirms the dignity and worth of each and every member of society. The First Amendment of the Constitution states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Generally speaking, this means that the government may not impose civil or criminal liability on people or organizations based on what they say or write. Freedom of speech applies to a variety of different forms of expression, such as talking, writing, broadcasting, displaying flags, and burning flags to name a few. However, there are a few instances when speech is not protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not protect speakers against private individuals or organizations. Furthermore, certain forms of speech such as true threats, defamation, perjury, and plagiarism are not protected by the First Amendment. More information is at constitutioncenter.org forward slash interactive constitution. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Adrian Litt-Smith, who is a professor of history at Duke University and author of an outstanding book titled Freedom Struggles, African Americans, and World War One." Or right before the break, it sounded as though you had a question for Professor Lint Smith. I'm going to turn it over to you and let you go ahead and ask that question. Okay, well, I, I know I'm kind of jumping uh, periods uh, a little bit uh, and uh, uh, going from World War One to uh, World War uh, Two, uh, but there was uh, this uh, play which uh, later became a uh, movie, uh, The Soldier Story. Uh, and uh, it uh, described uh, the uh, interaction between uh, African-Americans, uh, superior officers, and the enlisted uh, uh, men under uh, their wings and the kind of uh, treatment that, uh, that they were subjected to uh, during their tenure in the, uh, in the, in the military. Uh, and I do recall, uh, as I was growing up, uh, my grandfather uh, served in uh, World War One, and I had an uncle who served in uh, World War Two, and uh, was privy to some of their recollections on their service uh, in the uh, in, in, in the military. Uh, but could you kind of talk about uh, the, uh, the the experience of the uh, of the African American men in the military and that occasioned by uh, directly by the uh, racial animosity that existed uh, during that time, but also uh, the uh, uh, feeling of abuse that many of them shared with respect to the uh, treatment of African American superiors uh, who uh, lorded over them in uh, in the uh, military space. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think in both World War One and World War Two, there was a tension and sometimes a, a kind of notable divide between draftees who were just coming into the army and the career military guys who'd switched in from the 9th and 10th Cavalry and 24th and 25th Infantry to serve in the wartime army. And when I think back to some of the soldiers' memoirs from the World War I era, you have these stories of um, feeling of, of bitterness from the new guys about the rampant abuse that they got from some particularly bitter, particularly wizened, older, fellow African-American, but older soldiers. And the way I read that... Um, in World War One, and actually, I mean, sort of recognizable in the narrative that you see in this in a soldier story play and movie, is that these are people who have developed a sense of manhood, developed a sense of purpose, developed a sense of of kind of machismo and swagger from their military service, but that that sense and that service has been distorted by and warped by the ongoing abuse and pressure that comes from being within an army that is hostile to your very presence, right? And so in those instances when you see sort of career soldiers lashing out at at um, the wartime 
the wartime draftees, what you're seeing are people taking their abuse and paying it forward, you know, for want of a better term. I think when you think forward to World War II, you have, I mean, for one thing, the scale is bigger, right? There are far more um, soldiers, period, far more African-American soldiers in the World War II Army than in the World War I. You're also coming after a period. What happens after World War I is that the white army leadership, hostile to the very idea of black soldiers, tries to get rid of of as many black soldiers as possible out of the army, um, out of the standing army. So you're left again with the few regiments of Buffalo soldiers. Um, but in the lead up to World War II, as people in the 1930s can see World War II on the horizon, veterans of the World War I struggle, like Charles Hamilton Houston or Rayford Logan or others, begin to advocate and lobby Congress to make sure that soldiers have a marginally better experience in the second war than they do in the first. And they do this by expanding access to combat divisions, by expanding the number of officers, by making it harder to keep African-Americans on the sidelines. So you have similar tensions as in World War I, but I think, I mean, not a good position, but a structurally better position for black soldiers than you had in the previous war. Well, with, with respect to, to World War One, did you have a lot of of African Americans who were coming in to make it a career, as opposed to World War Two, where a large number of African Americans entered entered service uh, for the purpose of having a long term job with uh, benefits and retirement and other uh, 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 things that was uh, associated uh, with a, a, a better way of life in the long run. Uh, so was that really present in World War One as opposed to World War Two? No. And, I mean, there was no, there was really no possibility of making it a career during World War One. Again, the Army leadership from the outset was basically like, don't get too comfortable, you're not even capable of doing this, Right. Um, there was some of that rhetoric in World War II, but you have to remember that like the, the politics of the nation, the sort of the condition of the black freedom struggle had shifted a little bit. So if in World War I we have Jim Crow not just ascendant, but really comfortable with the president fully on board behind it, by World War II you've got two more decades of the freedom struggle led in part by people who've learned the, pace, the painful lessons of the World War One years. You have a switch. I mean, if we didn't talk about the Great Migration with World War One, but the consequences of that giant demographic move of African Americans to cities in the North and South where their vote actually can matter means that the politics of the Democratic Party have changed by the 1940s. Um, so Roosevelt is not hostile to them in the same way. And as opposed to a war for democracy, which is some opening rhetorically in World War I, 
The rhetoric in World War II is a war against fascism and with against fascism, a war against white supremacy. So that finally for the first time in, what, 40 some odd, almost 50 years, white supremacy is a, is a bad word even um, in large extent in the American South, right? White supremacy is on the defensive during World War II in a way that it absolutely was not during World War I, which then changes what's possible for African-American soldiers, right? So they again have a searing and painful and disillusioning experience with American racism, but what they can do to push it back and the room that they have to maneuver when they come home is different. It's more expansive. Yeah, and this is a fascinating um, comparison between you know World War One and World War Two. And to pick up on on your last point, so can you talk about the differences that the the veterans of World War One were able to make towards the freedom struggle? And compare that to what the the actions of the veterans of World War II were able to do in terms of contributing to the freedom struggle, given the difference in time and, and where the country right. was. I mean, a short answer would be that the World War I vets began putting effort and, and energy into the institutions that would, like, carry us forward through the longer freedom struggle, right? So you have the growth of NAACP branches during the World War I years. You have all of these people come and um, join the Garvey movement, which I know goes away, but the sort of like ethos and the vision of it, that sort of broader pan-Africanist, beyond the nation ideal will remain, right? But you also have an intense and deadly and hideous white supremacist backlash in the wake of World War I, right? If the lesson, I think, that I mentioned of World War I is not that black achievement is going to make people, um, white people think differently about African Americans, but will actually spur them to more vitriolic, um, you know, murder and rejection, right? The, that lesson is carried forward in the period in 1919 when there are riots and lynchings um, across the nation that are led by mobs, often with white servicemen in them, and that go after black bodies, black business districts, and the very and the kind of very markers of black achievement that Jim Crow was meant to put down. Right? You don't get that in the summer of 1945. You have pockets. You have instances. You know. You have moments of of racial terrorism in which black soldiers are attacked or murdered, but you don't have this like mass um, outbreak of violence because it's not sanctionable in the same way, right? Like it's not, it's not as allowable as a form of public activity in 1945 as it was in 1919, right? Even lynchings, which haven't gone away by any means, are no longer these giant public, like, festival-like things. They've become more private. They've become more secretive, in part because, again, of the ongoing pressure, um, the push for an anti-lynching, federal anti-lynching legislation, right? How do you 
forestall getting federal anti-lynching legislation. Stop having public lynchings where you like wave a flag and sell lemonade and take bodies as souvenirs, right? Make it less visible, which will make it in some ways less regulated, but also less horrifically broad. You know, I, I also uh, recall the, uh, the pride demonstrated by uh, African-American, uh, African-Americans who were in the military uh, as they would uh, come home on leave uh, and then strut around with uh, their uniforms on. Uh, to demonstrate to everyone that, one, that uh, I'm in the military, and, uh, two, that uh, I'm special, and I feel special as a result of uh, being able to to wear this uniform and also as a statement of expectation of differential treatment uh, from uh, what that, that they expected uh, whites to accord them as a result of their uh, military service. And that was something that uh, uh, I guess was more prevalent around the uh, World War II uh, military uh, uh, people than, because uh, I wasn't around during World War I uh, for some reason. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do recall uh, that uh, with uh, World War II and going into the uh, Korean War yeah. and uh, the kind of uh, uh, pride that uh, was exhibited there. Uh, can you comment on that? Am, am I off base with what my observations were? No, you're not off base in the fact that there was that pride and there was that self-presentation. It's the case, though, that that, was, that also happened during World War One. But again, the consequences of doing it were far more deadly, right? So during the Red Summer of 1919 that I mentioned, um, of those soldiers, I think that maybe 11 or 12 soldiers were lynched, and some of those were actually soldiers in uniform. And other folks who wore their uniforms home were, in one case, you know, ripped off of them at the train station. In many more instances... Um, people would get notes, you know, anonymous but signed by the Klan or something akin to the Klan that would say, like, you need, you need to take your uniform and yourself and you need to be gone, right? So if the Great Migration is sometimes about people leaving to seek opportunity, it's also about people run out and exiled because they are considered too dangerous for the status quo. And again, it's not that that doesn't happen in the aftermath of World War I, but it doesn't happen to the same extent and there are way more people who come home, whose service is known, whose pride is um, visible, who then build the movement that we, we come to see in the 1950s and 60s. And I think you're also right to bring in Korea, because if we think about how World War II is different from World War I, part of it is you have the end of World War II in 1945, you have the order desegregating the military from Truman in 48. It doesn't fully happen, but it's on the books, right? And then you have Korea in, what, 52 or to 54 or whenever. That's terrible. Whenever the Korean War is, says the historian. <laughs> but you have Korea in the early 1950s. And so the sort of the 
need for African-Americans as soldiers, the opportunities for military service, and the way that one can stay in the military and build a career all contribute to the efforts and energy of building the sort of mass movement of the 1950s and the 1960s. But if you think about the people who are our sort of touchstones for that 50s and 60s movement, you know, Medgar Evers, Charles Evers, Amesy Moore in Mississippi, you know, they're vets of, I think Evers was Korea, but in most cases, Korea and um, World War II. Amiri Baraka was a Korea um, vet, right? It was a sort of defining moment for the people that we think of as our civil rights and black power figures afterwards. All right. Well, we're going to have to take a break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about African-American veterans and their experiences and how those experiences shaped their view of and their participation in the civil rights movement. We've been talking with Adrienne Lint-Smith. She is a professor of history at Duke University. And we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I'm a current 1L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And these are your weekly announcements. From November 1st through the 22nd, the 2L Class Council of the North Carolina Central University School of Law will host a holiday toy drive for children ages 3 through 12. If you wish to participate, please place new and unwrapped toys within the designated boxes near the front entrance of the law school. The Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law will host a telehealth event regarding pre-exposure to prophylaxis as a prevention tool to be held on November 12th at 10.40 a.m. to 11.40 a.m. at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. The North Carolina Central University School of Law is delighted to invite you to its fall open house on Friday, November the 15th. Registration and breakfast will begin at 8.30 a.m. The event will run until 12 o'clock p.m., with tours ending at 1 o'clock p.m. The open house is a unique opportunity to learn about the law school, hear from students and professors, learn about our admissions process, and tour our law building. For more information regarding the law school and any of its upcoming events, please refer to the NCCU School of Law website at law.nccu.edu. My name is Reginald Woods II, and these are your weekly announcements. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Adrian Lint-Smith, who is a professor of history at Duke University, and we've been talking about African-American veterans. And right before the break, we were talking about the Korean War, and one of the things that we wanted to touch upon before we kind of continue with this movement to kind of current day was the Tuskegee Airmen. Irv, did you have a, a question about that? Yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, uh, as we honor uh, our people who have served in the military, one of the more high-profile uh, segments uh, that people know about is the uh, Tuskegee 
uh, airmen. I just wanted um, you to kind of talk about, you know, the uh, the impact and importance of uh, the uh, uh, Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen's uh, struggle and their uh, place within uh, military history and their uh, importance uh, to uh, the uh, continuing elevation of African Americans within the uh, various services. Yeah. So first, I think, again, I keep mentioning Charles Hamilton Houston and Rayford Logan because I love them and their kind of advocacy work in the 1930s. But I think it does bear pointing out that it's that kind of advocacy work in the 30s done not just by the two of them, but by other black veterans to make sure that there is that there are opportunities in the World War II Army that allows for there to even be something like the Tuskegee Airmen in the first place, right? That the black vets of, of World War I are very clear that in the next war, black soldiers will not be limited to, you know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with labor. I mean, I actually think you can't have a war without people doing the the hard and heavy lifting, literally. Um, but for people who wanted the symbolism and the experience and the potential mobility of black of black military combat service, they needed to open up doors and they needed to open up space and the having air corps units that ha- that were um airfields and air corps units that were placed on HBCUs and that allowed for black soldiers was an important byproduct of black vets protecting of World War 1 protecting soldiers in the next war i mean i always find the tuskegee the story of the tuskegee airmen both riveting and powerful and sad because on the one hand you have this um, remarkable and amazing heroism in which these black flyers who protect the um the bombers are celebrated like you know as the books will tell you like everybody wanted the tuskegee airmen they wanted the they wanted the red tails because they felt more confident that they would come back safe and yet in the immediate aftermath of the war, that story petered away a little bit. So you have all of these accounts, people going back and doing oral histories with their parents or grandparents in their 1980s and saying, you know, we only learned that you were one of these during the sort of renaissance of your story that started in, what, the 2000s or 1990s. And the older Tuskegee Airmen saying, well, because nobody cared or even more nobody believed me so on the one hand they're carrying that pride they're carrying that sense of entitlement they're carrying this knowledge of what they did and yet in this way that you know some of our most important histories get buried their experiences didn't fit the kind of textbook whitewashed world war ii narrative to the point where it almost fell out of black collective memory so part of the power is not simply their military service and what they stand for now and the way that some of them stayed in the military and had you know certain kinds of mobility through the military structure, but it's also in the part of the power of their story lies in reviving black memory, black collective memory, to enrich our national history and our sense of the possible. And, you know, 
I think that's one of the reasons why this discussion is so fascinating and your book is so fascinating because it, it when you're not familiar with this aspect of our history and you learn about it, it makes you, and I say you and I, I'm thinking about me, have a better understanding of, of the civil rights movement. And so can you share your thoughts on whether we can have an accurate understanding of our civil rights journey, can we have that without fully understanding the role that our black veterans played? No, right? Because, I mean, historians and and folks with a rich view of the civil rights movement have been writing against or talking against this for years. But the fact of the matter is, if you still go to the American popular narrative of the civil rights movement, it's that one day black, that Mark, Martin Luther King woke up like black Jesus and delivered us all to Zion, right? Like, that is the story. And it is a story that doesn't capture how social movements happen. It doesn't capture how this particular movement happened. It doesn't capture the sort of variegated experience of black life in America or even in kind of the texture of American democracy and what makes some people feel or get presented as or treated as more entitled than others, right? Our narrative makes us not understand how democracy works, right? Adding in black soldiers, one, I'd say like people's jobs matter. When we talk about history, the labor that folks do is important to how they build the world and how they're important, how they're empowered to do whatever it is that they do. When you talk about African-American communities, um, the military as a job, right, as a route to certain kinds of class mobility, as a thing that structures folks' days, as a thing that brings people into and out of their communities, is an important part of the texture of any black history. Um, and soldiers' efforts in the history of the freedom struggle tell us something about how not just African Americans, but Americans, broadly speaking, have engaged the world. I also think that by the time you get to the post-war period, the 1950s and the 1960s, certainly, when you're in the thick of the Cold War, and a re-articulation or a kind of new version of American power that requires a whole bunch of, if not warfare, at least the capacity to make war, then you're talking about pulling in a whole bunch of everybody into the military to do that work, right? So thinking about where black soldiers are domestically in the military, like how they play a role in the broader politics and society is telling us something about the, how the Cold War shaped American lives beyond just the sort of realm of foreign relations. And, you know, when we think about, you, there was something that you, that you said that made me think about the GI Bill and, and how, uh, when we're thinking about class mobility and how there were uh, vets who were able to uh, move up kind of that class ladder, but there was still a lot of inequality when it comes to the benefits that were gained by white vets versus the benefits that right. were gained or not gained by black vets. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So there's a political scientist named Ira Katz Nelson who has a great book called When Affirmative Action Was White, which is about the GI Bill um, primarily. 
And his argument, you could actually get, you don't even have to read like a political science book. You can go back to Roy Otley's radio show from the 1940s, New World A-Coming, where he has an episode about a black family trying to use GI, maybe it's from the 1950s, but a black family trying to use GI Bill benefits to buy a home. And given the kind of the other kind of zoning laws and the ways in which they're being directed, though they can't use their benefits in the way that other people can. And this is, I mean, for the the Otley radio show, this is someone who's already gotten access to the to their GI Bill benefits because GI Bill benefits um, are locally administered, so or were locally administered. So who could get to them? Like it depended on the 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 responsibleness and the goodwill of local administrative boards to make sure that everybody across the population got what they deserved. And by and large, I mean, you can imagine the places in the South or the West, right? Because we keep talking about this as if this is a Southern phenomenon, but this kind of commitment um, to, you know, black inequality is not simply a Southern, a Southern thing. But sort of there are places where African-Americans are not allowed access to their benefits in the same way. And so what you see over generations is people accrue, like they start with this kind of capital or this kind of wealth in an early generation and they're building on it. And then you've got other folks who never had the chance to have it to build on in the first place. Over time, you end up with people in very different situations. And the people who are left out are told, well, they were foolish for never investing themselves wisely in the first place. So then they're also, in the, in the words of the young folk, gaslighted by being told that it's their, their own fault. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and what you're speaking about is this, uh, you know, the wealth gap, right? And so you've got uh, white vets, black vets, both putting their lives on the line, serving the country, and the white vet might be able to take advantage of the VA loans, buy property, property in neighborhoods where the, the values are increasing. You've got a black vet not being able to take advantage of those loans um, and having to purchase houses, if they can, in an area where property values are decreasing because of the redlining. And then also when we think about GI benefits, educational opportunities. So if African-Americans could not go to certain schools because they were, you know, segregated, uh, not able to fully take advantage of of those benefits as well. And so we see the, you know, the discrimination that was brought upon black vets. You're able to tie that directly to some of the wealth gap that we see within this country. Right. Can you talk a little bit about one of the things that you you talked about early on in our discussion was kind of the opposition to having black soldiers or black soldiers in combat. And there seems to be this shift when we look at, say, the Vietnam War and the people who were being either selected when it came to the draft. Um, And so then we've got this situation where it appears as though black bodies or, or brown bodies are viewed as the most appropriate people to put their lives on the line in defending the country. Can you t- kind of talk about about that shift and and how it happened and, and and maybe why? Sure. So one one thing that I'll say, I mean, the overall arc like arc of the story would be that people become more skeptical about the nobility of war over the course of the 20th century. 
And so the argument that black people don't deserve the honor of soldiering or being a soldier gives way to a uh, um, much more to a kind of disinvestment in in soldiering overall, right? Which then becomes, why would I send my kid to fight when I can send these other kids? When I can put somebody else's body in harm's way, right? And that has a lot to do with the difference between how America mobilized for World War II and the causes of it, and then also the kind of deep, broad-based skepticism about whether or not Vietnam made sense for the U.S. to be fighting. Within that, though, there are some caveats. I mean, there is a strong Southern, white, and black skepticism about conscription and the draft during World War I. And so in some instances, because draft boards like the GI Bill later were locally administered, what you get during World War I, sometimes in one community, they might be saying, only white boys because this is a noble thing and only they should go. And then the next community over, people will be going, I need my son for the farm. Let's go send the kids from the wrong side of the tracks over, right? So who ends up getting drafted in World War I really depends on the particular kind of ethos or feeling of community, sort of after community after community. Still, if you go back to the larger arc of the story, what happens during World War II when everyone is called upon to fight, and there are so many people, is that it begins to put to bed even the sort of broader arguments about black people being unsuited, um, un, un, unskilled or unable to fight, right? That World War II shifts that conversation, I think Korea a little bit more so. And so then when you get to... Vietnam and people are already thinking like who should fight this who do we do, who do we want it to be I don't know if they want it we want it to be us there's a little more room to like throw more black bodies at the at the struggle I mean it's also the first fully integrated it's the first time that the that the uh, the military forces are fully integrated right um Truman's order is 48, but it hasn't really, they haven't figured out what that, how that works and what it's going to look like by Korea. Hmm. So it's in Vietnam that you start being more willing to put African-Americans in combat positions and they're fighting alongside um, other Americans. And you also have them moving up in the, uh, in, in the ranks. Uh, you know, your, your Chaffee James, your uh, Colin Powell's, Right. Uh, moving into the upper echelon of the uh, of, of, of various uh, uh, service as uh, uh, as an example of in the military there being the ability to overcome some of the discrimination that exists in the uh, the society at uh, at, at large, uh, but at the same time you have a growing uh, uh, animosity uh, by uh, the uh, uh, African Americans in the street uh, mm -hmm. who are heavily engaged in, in the civil rights movement, uh, which develops into a uh, uh, hell no, we won't go uh, mm -hmm. mentality as it relates to uh, the, uh, the Vietnam War. That's right. And the Johnson administration in the meantime being like, how do we tamp down on this social protest? I know, let's draft those people specifically, right? So people are saying, hell no, we won't go, and then turning around and getting draft letters, right? Um, 
and both of those things, I mean, what's interesting is that I think that that, that um, like vocal dissent doesn't disappear just because people end up in the army. That the debates that soldiers have within their ranks about the viability of the Vietnam War, about whether or not they want to be fighting it, about whether or not um, they need to close ranks and set aside racial tensions. Like you see the same things playing out within the Vietnam era army that you would see playing out on the streets during the Vietnam era. And there are some historians who've argued that actually the move to an all-volunteer force after Vietnam is as much about taking that vi- the vitality and the sort of vocalness of that dissent out of the military ranks as it is about civilians' discontent with the Vietnam War. Adrian, you've got something that's coming up. We've got a few minutes, but I, I wanted you to have an opportunity to share. You've got a conversation on December 6th. Tell our um, listening audience what you have coming up. So I do. Um, I am the host of a conversation, a community conversations series through Duke's Keenan Institute for Ethics that's called The Ethics of Now with Adrian Lentzmith. <laughs> um, and it allows me to have my little like Oprah moment. But the conversation on December 6th is with a social psychologist and MacArthur um, fellow awardee named Jennifer Eberhardt, who is a psychology professor at Stanford who writes on the psychology of racism. And so on the 6th, December 7th, I mean, sorry, December 7th at 7 p.m. at the Durham Arts Council, we will be having a conversation that's open to all about racism, about policing, and about psychology. All right, all right. And unfortunately, we are out of time, but this has been such a fascinating discussion, and we want to thank Adrian Lint-Smith, who is a professor and associate chair in the history department at Duke, where she also holds secondary appointments in African and African-American studies and gender, sexuality, and feminist studies. And she is the author of this book that I highly recommend called Freedom Struggles, African-Americans and World War I. And we'd like to thank you, of course, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show on iTunes in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.